0: Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com. Where well, we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. So I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Courtney Johnston, who is Tumu Fakarai, Chief Executive of Te Papa Tongarewa, the Museum of New Zealand. Courtney's had a varied career across web, communications and people leadership. One of her first jobs, while she was a student at Victoria University studying for her Master's in Art History, was actually as a visitor host at Te Papa. Her early career was at City Gallery Wellington as an assistant curator and publicist, before moving to the National Library, working across communications and web. She was the General Manager at Boost Media, a web design and development agency in the early 2010s, before spending a number of years as Director at the Dows Art Museum in Lower Hutt. She initially joined Te Papa as the Director of Audience and Insight, before moving into her current role at the end of 2019. And outside of her full-time gigs, she was the Visual Arts Correspondent on Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan for 10 years, and has also been on the boards of a wide range of organisations, including as Chair of Museums Aotearoa. I'm really looking forward to hearing more today. Kia ora Courtney, and thank you very much for joining me. Oh, kia ora, it's such a delight. Lovely. Well, my first question is going to take you a little way back, and I know that you grew up on, a I think on a dairy farm just outside of New Plymouth. When you were a child, what careers were you thinking about or maybe aspiring to?: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like growing up on a farm
1: has shaped me so much, and when you grow up on a farm, life is the work. You don't distinguish between those two things. I do remember, you know, being really little and wanting to be an archaeologist. Turns out, actually, I wanted to be a paleontologist and that was because, like every four-year-old, I was incredibly into dinosaurs. I remember when I was in my early teens, high school, it was when the Warriors, the rugby league club, had just been set up and a friend and I were watching every single game and that was when I decided I was going to be a physiotherapist for the Warriors and then I found out about statistics, which is something I was not very good at at all, so that went away. When I went to university, it was mostly about getting out of New Plymouth, which is why I headed down to Otago and then I did subjects that I loved and found fascinating. So I started off with a double degree in art history and psychology, but at that point, still no real picture, I think, of what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think that really didn't start to emerge until I moved, I transferred to Wellington at the beginning of my third year of my undergraduate in 2000. And it was one of those kind of sliding door moments where Everything changed and almost like I fell into a career opportunity that turned out to fit me like a glove when I got into the art history department at Victoria University and the newly established Adam Art Gallery that had just opened up at Victoria as well. And then, of course, the newly established Te Papa, which had just opened in 1998 too. So aside from really inspirational teachers who lit me up around learning I actually can't remember when I decided what I wanted to be at
0: all. And I think that's quite common for people. I think it's often quite rare that we have an epiphany age 13 and then pursue that for the rest of our lives. I think often it is, as you said, you're most through those experiences and trying some stuff out and finding the things that you really love or maybe getting into an environment and you go, oh, this is something I'm really passionate about. It's that often enough, the real live experience, which helps to shape the past. And tell me a little bit about some of your first jobs and what did you learn from those? I guess I grew up working on the farm. Mm -hmm. I was really
1: lucky. We spent, as kids, there were three of us, we spent heaps of time with my dad on the farm as well as with my mum. And my mum was working on the farm as well. I guess I mucking in and just doing things and seeing work as fun, doing as you're told and seeing work as fun and finding working really satisfying was a big experience of my kind of growing up and then i think like a lot of young people i got into hospitality that was, those were my first kind of jobs were waitressing and clearing glasses and thinking back on it i learned heaps from waitressing and i still really admire good Weight staff. I learnt there a lot about using charm and diplomacy to settle tensions in groups and I learnt a lot about systems improvement and I learnt heaps about honesty with clients which I'm not sure whether my bosses at various restaurants would have appreciated all the very honest advice that I gave to our customers but maybe that was a value set kind of emerging in an early role.
0: Yeah, wonderful. I wait just for a few years as well as uh, certainly as kind of a student. And I agree. I look back at that time and you do find actually that you learn a lot from that. And it's one of the things I think I love about New Zealand is that you said whether it's growing up on a farm or even those kind of early jobs is at school while well, you maybe you're studying. I think we get into the world of work quite early and so you learn a lot even from those first roles. Mm. And then what then, as you got more into your professional career, what were some of perhaps the highlights, but maybe also the challenges of those first few years? I think it's
1: hard to know when when your career started, but maybe when I started doing jobs, a lot of short-term contracts actually when I was at university and doing my honours and my masters, a lot of little bricks that started to build up into a bigger path, I guess. And the biggest thing was all of my lecturers who made opportunities for me or connected me into their networks and helped me get a 12-week job here or a bit of part-time work here, all of which strengthened my visibility and brought opportunities my way. Little research contracts or I worked on the New Zealand at Venice, the Venice Biennale project in 2001 as the researcher for Michael Stevenson because one of my lecturers put me forward for that or visitor hosting at the Adam Art Gallery and then getting the opportunity to learn how to handle artworks. Everything that's come my way has been by virtue of other people seeing me and offering me something to do. But I think the first challenge, like the my first real jobs were at City Gallery Wellington, where I got to work on the Shane Cotton exhibition there, working for Lara Strongman, Rosalie Gascoigne, working with grown-up curators while I was finishing off my master's. And I desperately wanted to be a curator. I wanted it so much. And it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I always felt like I was always the bridesmaid, that the searchlight of opportunity passed over me to the person standing next to me. And it just, I I even used to just think it was just because I didn't dress right, but being a curator never happened for me. So I sort of fell sideways into PR and then into comms, like the the full-time assistant curator job at City Gallery went to one person and then they offered me the PR job as kind of a consolation, I think, in a way. And so that set me off on a whole new path. And looking back, I'm really glad that it happened, but it it was always puzzling to me. Yeah, yeah, sometimes there have been some really important moments in my career where I haven't been able to make something happen or I haven't got a job that I really wanted. And I've learned just as much from those experiences as I've learned from getting what I wanted or um, getting what I set out to achieve. But I think probably the other... On reflection, the other really major aspect of those early years of my career were um, I met my first husband when I was still at university and he was 10 years older than me and he was an art curator. He was a proper grown-up, established freelance art curator. And so I decided when I was about 25, I guess, that because the number of roles in New Zealand that he was interested in that fitted his talents and his Uh, career desires were so limited. There were literally three jobs in New Zealand that he was interested in. I decided it was my role to be the generalist and to be much more flexible, to not pursue opportunities that would block his path And so that was a big part of the reason why I went and worked at National Library was to develop more generalist skills. And at the time, so this is 17 years ago now, at the time that made perfect sense to me. And the reason I raise it is that it's probably something Up until the last six months, I haven't thought about very hard. But I look back on 25-year-old me, and I fully understand why I made that decision. But I wish, I do rather wish someone had taken me aside and held a mirror up to the decision-making that I was doing around my career. And just questioned me on, did did I really think I was making the best decisions? Was this really what I should be doing because everything worked out really beautifully but yeah I I look back on that decision to shape my career options around a more dominant personality and I think well mostly I just think oh that's interesting and if one of the young people who I mentor today had that conversation
0: with me I would probably have some things to say about it. I think it's really interesting reflections and it's it's something I quite often see with the women that I coach is particularly maybe if they have a male partner around thinking about that dual career and how they might shape their career to fit around the other person mm-hmm. and it's not uncommon uh, but I think it's interesting whereas there's, I think often women who I coach who are maybe into their 40s start to think about that less That mm. so they start to maybe think about actually what it is what is it at this stage now that I really want for myself so I think it changes sometimes slightly as people go through their careers and maybe mature as well and then as you went through your own career you moved progressively into I guess more leadership roles so the general manager at Bruce Media and then as the director at the Dallas Art Museum I was really interested how have you developed yourself as a leader over time?
1: I think a lot of it's self-taught or is it self-taught? Uh, maybe it's community development. Maybe I've been communally developed as a leader. I've done very little formal leadership training, but I have learned from so many extraordinary leaders, leaders and people managers and people who might not be leading people, but they're leading practice and leading ideas and I'm a very collaborative person and I enjoy being around people. I enjoy watching people work and learning from them. And I enjoy reflecting on how things have gone and thinking about how they could go differently. Or my best days are the days when I can take a step back from what I'm doing and, and take a breath and go, okay, what's happening here? What's happening around me? What am I not thinking about? How could this play out differently if I looked at it a bit differently? So, I, I think I actually overdosed on leadership development just over this past year. You know, I um, was appointed as Tumu Whakarai at Christmas time in 2019. And this, this step up has been massive for me. And me being me, I, I set out to learn as much as possible. So, I, I put together my squad of chief executives, I can't believe how generous people have been to me in this role and the doors that open up and the people who are willing to sit down with me and and talk about what I'm seeing and doing and and puzzling over. So I put together my squad of new work friends, but I also got a little bit too stuck into podcasts and books and articles and things like that. And I realised over summer that my head had become quite a cacophony of opinions and leadership styles and you should be doing this and you should not be doing this and you should be pushing yourself like this and have you analyzed yourself enough and do you have space in your diary for reflection and what are you trying to improve and what is your intention for this month? And so in about February, I think, I, I had to put my foot down on myself and I said, I'm taking a month off self-improvement. I'm not reading a single blog post, I'm not listening to a single podcast. I'm not going to set myself goals to improve myself. I'm just going to stop for a month and let my brain relax a bit and maybe consolidate a little. So I'm trying not to run on the treadmill of self-improvement quite as fast as I tend to to do because it ended up not doing me any good. I overworked that muscle to the point where it was beginning to, I guess, deform my gait a little bit. And the irony, of course, is that um taking a break from self-improvement is a form of self-improvement. It's kind of an inescapable spiral. Yeah, I think women in particular, and and because we are open and we're communicative and we learn from talking to each other, it's very easy to get into quite a hardcore cycle of self-improvement that creates a lot of extra work for ourselves on top of the, just the normal work that we're doing throughout our lives. So I'm consciously at the moment trying to dial back on self-improvement and give myself a bit more space to just be
0: I think that's fascinating, and I think it's fascinating to hear kind of as you went through, you absolutely learn from others, you've been lucky enough to have amazing leaders, you set up your squad, you've done some sort of self-awareness reflection over time, but then you have really kind of, okay, maxed out probably on on getting advice from all sorts of sources. And I can imagine that might be like the way you talked about it as a cacophony, and I agree with you. I see often women look to a wide variety of external sources, whereas sometimes actually the wisdom and awareness they need, they can find more in themselves. And what was your journey then to becoming Tumu of Te Papa?
1: It was a dogleg. Like I think my career looks quite um, sensible in hindsight, although I don't think it ever, I it feels to me more like jumping from one one stepping stone to another quite far away and possibly not particularly well linked up one. So there's been a couple of really pivotal moments, I think. Going to National Library, um, where I moved into comms, but from there very quickly into web, and it was just at that point, kind of 2007, 2008, when Web 2.0, which we now know as social media, was just beginning to really open up. And it meant that suddenly I was immersed in two sets of ethics which were really important so there were library ethics which is about non-judgmental service to people of of connecting people with the information um, and the knowledge that they request without passing judgment on that person or their question or their need and a kind of progressive neutrality that's always that's also really pervasive I think in the library culture, which is one that is very protective of people who have been discriminated against or repressed, and seeks subtly to uplift the voices that haven't been heard in society enough and to protect the vulnerable. And so, that as uh, kind of 26, 27, when I went to National Library, that impressed itself upon me really deeply. And then at the same time, being involved in in this flourishing Web 2.0 movement and a really important community here in Wellington at that time around Webstock, which was the annual conference run by Mike Brown and Natasha Lampard, which was about ethics in the web, ethics in the internet, ethics in how you make services for people, how you treat people, how you um, invite community participation, when we were just trying to figure out what all of these things meant and ideas that were drifting around at that time, or well, not even drifting around, really dominant ideas about things like radical transparency, user-centred design, that sort of, that ethical setting with the library's ethical setting, I think was one of my first big growing up moments and that was supported by being part of that webstock community. And then after about five years at National Library, the national government came in, and things began to feel quite different. Uh, the proposal went through to merge the national library into the Department of Internal Affairs, which was not something I felt stoked about. And I looked around, and I'd outgrown my role as well. And I looked around government and kind of was trying to figure out whether there was anywhere where I could have as much fun and as much learning and as much influence as I'd been lucky to have at the library. And I just couldn't see it so I actually again I didn't know what I wanted to be and I actually didn't know what value I had outside of the public sector at that point I must have been about 30 And so I wrote to two people. I wrote to Mike Brown from Webstock, who'd come out of a a major web company, and I wrote to Nathan Donaldson, who ran Boost New Media, which was a company we did a lot of work with when I was at the library. And I said to them, look, I've reached the end of my time here. I don't know what to do next. You both know me quite well. What would I be good at? What could I do? And they were both incredibly kind. And Mike wrote me back this really insightful kind of analysis of what I was good at and what opportunities there might be and what I could work towards. And Nathan just wrote me back and said, look, gutted to hear that you're thinking about leaving the library. Enjoy working with you there. Uh, do you want a job? So that was the most straightforward job interview I've ever had. And so I went to mm-hmm. went to Boost for two years and loved it, loved the Loved actually the pressure, the really honest pressure of having to make enough money to pay people. I think that was a really good antidote to the public service. And I loved getting immersed in lots and lots of clients' projects. And I loved the pace that we got to work with. But the one thing that I missed deeply was getting to nurture something of my own. Like there's, I find there is only so much satisfaction you can get from repeatedly delivering other people's ideas or other people's passion projects. I miss that quite a lot. And then the other thing, and I hope it's okay for the people listening to this to go into this, but it is probably the major pivot point in my career is that when I was, just before I turned 33, so 2012, my first husband committed suicide. And it had been a really, he he suffered greatly from depression and anxiety and it had been an incredibly hard two years leading up to that. And so I found myself at his funeral was the day before my 33rd birthday. And I found myself, I was really lucky. I was really fortunate that for me, grief was an experience that opened me up to the world it made me very vulnerable but in a way that let me experience the world with enormous intensity and I think I was probably quite untethered and a little bit manic but for the first time in my adult life I could throw everything could be thrown up into the air and and there were no limitations anymore. But the reason I don't normally talk about this in terms of my career journey is that it's not a replicable experience, it doesn't. When people say, how did you get to where you are? You don't really want to say, well, there was this pivotal moment which was a bit of a personal tragedy and so there you go, just find a really good trauma that makes you into a stronger and more resilient person and success will fall upon you i went for the douse job which was really out of my reach at that point i was such a maverick appointment for that job but i went for it because i just had the sense at that time in my life that nothing stood in my way nothing stood in my way nothing could stop me and there was nothing stopping me from thinking that i could do it and so i had this incredible almost reckless courage. I mean, applying for a job is not a particularly reckless or courageous thing to do, but to think that you can, in an industry that's actually very hierarchical and has quite a set pattern by which people move from opportunity to opportunity, it was a bit unexpected to come in completely from left field and be given the opportunity. Yeah, I try to balance that because I think I've worked really hard not to, it's a very easy narrative to fall into of being brave little widow and of being kind of young and a bit tragic. There's quite a lot of glamour and drama to that. There's a bit of a thing where people kind of almost, there's a lot of emotion to it and that can be really attractive for people. And so I've fought quite hard not to be defined Uh, and it doesn't happen anymore this was nearly 10 years ago now but I fought really hard at the time not to be defined by this story because my husband was really well known in the industry that I work in so it was my story. I was puzzling this this interview out because you shared the questions in advance um, with three of my closest friends who I have this continuous text conversation with and I actually tested them on this idea. I said do you think I should share this? Because it feels really important to me, but I don't know if it's the right thing to share on this platform and this opportunity. And one of my friends texted me back and she said, look, it is important, but it's not the only thing that's propelled you forward. It's just the most obvious one. And that was a good reminder because I am me and things would have happened even if this thing hadn't have happened. It's just, it kind of, provides the background to my story so I hope that's Mm. okay to share
0: Mm, and thank you for sharing it because I think this work and careers are not separate from our broader lives and things happen in our lives which will impact sometimes our career paths and, and choices I'm really sorry for your loss And I think, thank you for sharing it, because other people will have had tough stuff that's gone on in their lives too, that maybe we try to not impact us too much, but in reality has somehow shaped the path that we've gone on. So thank you for sharing it. I think one of the beautiful things about it is that
1: it's made me into a more sensitive person and into a person who I I hope as a leader is more approachable and open for people who need and want to talk about these things and so also when I think about the well-being of my people I think about it in terms of my own experience how I would have been better off if I'd been able to be more open if I'd had the confidence to be more open but also about that you never know unless people feel confident to share with you what's happening in the rest of their life and how that impacts on them in the working life where you get to support them so It's become, that kind of consideration has become really central to my leadership style, I guess. And so for that, I'm grateful because I think without it, I would have been a much more black and white person. And with it, I've got an emotional range that I wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: Mm, Really interesting insights, yeah. And then thinking about your current role now, I'd love to hear, Courtney, what do you really love about the the role and the work that you do today? So this is the job of my dreams.
1: I never, I didn't expect to get it when I did. I thought I would have to wait for it for a lot longer. And I do have days where I look around and wonder When the grown-up is going to turn up and start doing the job? When's the grown-up going to turn up and tell me to get out of the desk? (laughs) Because they're here now. But I love it. I love museums. I find them emotionally and intellectually and spiritually nourishing places to work. And emotionally and intellectually and spiritually demanding as well, I think, Museums today, particularly in societies like our one, a colonized society. We're places of great beauty and learning and enjoyment and relaxation and leisure and connection and well-being. but we're also places that are engaged in actively healing the trauma of the past and helping us as a society move through that trauma to take it with us in a way that we can carry it together and help each other and look forward to the challenges of our future and our children's future and our children's children's futures. So I see, that's where I see museums at their deepest level acting. So I think a lot about how will the decisions I make today both impact life in 20 years' time, but how will they be viewed in 20 years' time? There's this line in our legislation as the Museum of New Zealand that talks about being a source of pride to New Zealand. And when I have to make a tricky decision, I don't just think, does this feel like a decision that society could be proud of now? I think in 20 years' time... Will someone looking at this decision go, oh, no, no? And I think about that. It's, you know, particularly prevalent at the moment as we see so many cases. Not I mean, not just the claims going through the Waitangi Tribunal and, and two centuries now of colonisation to work through, but of the Me Too movement and of what has been acceptable in our workplaces for decades and decades and decades and our tendency to say, oh, well, in the 80s it was like that. I don't want someone in 20 years' time looking back and saying, oh, well, in the early 2020s that was still kind of okay. So it's that's what I love about my job, that I get to spend my time thinking about something like that. And then when I'm not thinking on big abstract topics like that, I think the, the thing that always really lights me up is I love seeing people succeed. I love seeing people take joy in their work. I love seeing people grow and that's I,
0: I moved into people management quite early in my career and and that's what I love about it. I like the way you described it. And I like you say that view of not is it just the right thing or there's something that would feel that would give people pride now, but taking that really long term view, must be a yeah, completely different perspective. Fascinating. I would love to hear next, you know, you've talked and I can hear how much you love your current work, but I can imagine it almost might also be quite all-consuming. How do you find balance between your working life and your life outside?
1: Yeah, this has changed really dramatic for me in the last three years. I, the thing about working in the arts is that you can work all the time. You can do social work, you can do intellectual work, you can do writing work, you can be talking about it on social media, you can live and breathe it all day around and that's what I used to do and that wasn't always great for my relationships and so three years ago I met my current husband, my forever husband, current husband's a terrible phrase, my forever now husband, Ruben. And Ruben's also a museum director, so it's kind of even more important to have some boundaries. But Ruben's got three kids from his first marriage. So when we got married two years ago, I had to just totally reformat how I live my life in order to be able to be good at work, good in my marriage, and good as a parent. And that means... It's meant setting much firmer boundaries. I work fewer hours now than I probably have since at least the last decade, but I work them much harder. And I also just have to accept that I can't do everything for as long as I want to or maybe even as well as I want to if I want to sustain the other aspects of my life as well. And one of the real challenges inside of that is having to reformulate my idea of what being productive means. I didn't realize how much I valued that sense of productivity. And I mean that not just in the sense of getting things done, but also of putting things out into the world. Like I used to have time to blog and to write reviews of the books that I was reading and, and share things. And I don't have time to do that anymore, that kind of producing things out into the world is something that I've had to let go in order to create space for a family. And, and, and maybe I, this is not a unique story, but I guess my experience of it is quite sharpened because I sort of went from not having a family to having a fully formed one with a 12, a 10 and a nine-year-old. So it was quite a fast flip and it all happened at the same time that I joined to PAPA as well. So it was a great big change and I've sort of had to learn how to be happy in a different way. And again, this has made me, finally I understand what life is like for working parents. You can't really understand it until you've been in amidst it. And I really appreciate that opportunity to be smarter and more considerate as a leader as well.
0: Mm-mm. As you say, that kind of quite a sharp change versus versus actually having more time probably to adjust to it. Yeah, really interesting. And alongside the change of taking on the role of Tipapa, how have you? What's helped you c- cope with that amount of change? I walk a lot. <laughs> I've actually, I've i've got a
1: persistent wrist injury and that means that I've, one of the things that I've had to give up is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is a, a martial art that I'd been doing for about eight or nine years. And at about the same time that I became Tumu Fakarai, my wrist blew out. And so I had to, give that up which was hard because it's kind of it's a community that I stay in touch with as well as a form of exercise and intensity that I really love but I live in the middle of Wellington and I just I honestly I just do laps I do laps over Mount Victoria and down to the waterfront and and that's when I can kind of Process and let things go. Although I stand up on the top of Mount Victoria, and when I was applying to be Tumu Whakarai over it, was kind of a three months process. And so, maybe every other day, I walk up to the top of Mount Victoria and you'd look right down on Te Papa, and I'd look down on it and I'd go, Oh my god, like one day, one day that might be me. And now I walk up there and I look down on it and I go, Oh my god, that's me. Oh dear god. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I. That, that's probably been the main thing that I, I walk a lot up hills and I have, for the first time in my career, I have a formal mentor, an experienced person who meets with me regularly and helps me stay on track and the benefit of that for me has just been amazing.
0: I can imagine. Equally, I did also like the way that you've kind of created that broader support squad around you. But also you took through your career of kind of having those champions almost who've seen something in you and pushed you forward into opportunities. You know, it strikes me that you're quite comfortable asking for help and support to help you through. Totally. That's one of the things
1: that actually I learnt, I learnt in my first marriage is that if, if you're struggling and you shut yourself off, no one can help you. And as as embarrassing sometimes as it feels to say to someone, look, I don't know how to do this thing. You're just the relief, the immense relief that comes and the, how quickly things will fall into perspective and how generous people will be. So it's one of the things that I say when I take on new team members. And um, I don't have to do it as much now because I work with people who, like all, all of my team are older than me. So I'm not working with people who are early in their careers as directly as I used to. But when I did work a lot with people who were just starting off in their careers, it was always something that I reiterated. It was do not sit at your desk and stew about it. There is no shame in asking and in, in saying, I don't know how to do this yet. Can you give me some advice? Or I'm not quite sure if the way I'm tackling this is the right way. Can you give me some advice? Because Those are also some of your best opportunities. Ask in those moments when you ask people for help. And I definitely find with my chief executive squad, bless them, they're lovely people. I don't know if they realize that they're my squad, but they are. That they're just putting one foot in front of each other every day too. Like one of the funny things about being a chief executive, I find it's my first time being a chief executive, is that it's really hard to know whether you're doing your job that there's not a lot of definition around your job. And you, you make a lot of choices about how you do your job and where you put your time and, and what you're pushing forward. And there's been a lot of reassurance for me in talking to other people who are doing similar jobs for me and understanding that they too are working in that ambiguous space and are, have built up their confidence to live with that ambiguity and be comfortable with it and see that ambiguity, see that sense of not having the answer yet, of being willing to say, I don't know how to do this yet because it's not been done before. There's so much confidence that comes from being good at saying, I don't know how to do this yet. That's just been one of the biggest mental breakthroughs for me. And I no longer really believe in in imposter syndrome. I think sometimes it is really valid, but I think it discounts a little bit That natural feeling of not knowing how to do something yet because you're learning and seeing that as a good space to be in rather than a threatening. Space to be in—that's something I have quite strong feels about right now.
0: And I think you—I know you can hear you—you're you're kind of a living, walking, breathing example of growth mindset. <laughs> you ultimately didn't say I don't know how to do this; it was I don't know how to do this yet. But I think it is so important because if you come into something with that mindset of I'm learning, I'm looking to improve, it's actually it's a much more healthy way to be than kind of I want to prove myself, which puts a lot of pressure on you to kind of get things right. And and actually, you're getting up the learning curve much more quickly if you're if you're asking for help and trying to learn along the way. Yeah, super, Courtney, great. We talked about some of the perhaps more challenging times in your life and your career. What have been your proudest career moments? I am fiercely proud that I get to do the job
1: that I get to do. I do see myself as in this role, preparing the ground for the person who comes after me. And I think the people who come after me New Zealand needs those people to be leading our cultural institutions. Women, Māori, Pacifica, non-Pākehā people. Effectively, like I shouldn't get some sort of diversity tick just for being younger and female. That's a pretty, pretty lame bit of diversity there, really. But if I look across the public sector, it's still quite true. And I feel proud when I see museums making a difference to people's lives I feel so 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 proud of that I'm so lucky to work in this sector it's just it's a place of immense reward of truly feeling like you're making history better looking into the future it's so powerful
0: Wonderful to hear. And I think I'm, so I have three kids myself and I'm now seeing museums through their eyes as well and seeing what they mm-hmm. take from them, which is very different from what I take. And I think absolutely the the role that they play is is so important. And, and I like the way you talked about it, kind of emotionally, spiritually, intellectually engaging. It's yeah fascinating. One last question, if I may, Courtney, I'd love to hear what career advice would you have for other women? I always say, Tell people what you want to happen.
1: People can't help you achieve your dreams if you don't share them. I think we have a tendency to be very secretive about what we want. We have a whole culture that based around not letting people know when we were applying for jobs, and it's risky and it's risky to your feelings. A few years ago I went for the director role at Auckland Museum and I didn't get it and lots of people knew that I didn't get it and that was a bit crushing although it was completely the right decision for the board at Auckland Museum at that time and I'm quite relieved. I wasn't, I definitely wasn't ready for that job and um, probably a good thing all around but It's only been by sharing what it is that I'm trying to. I'm driven by the sense of my own potential. I'm so curious about my own potential. And the only way to really light that up is to let other people help me grow it. And so that is always my advice to people. We can't help you achieve your dreams if you don't
0: share them. Hmm. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful advice. And I think one that is particularly important for women is to sometimes to allow ourselves to dream and then to put some of those dreams out there so that then other people can help us make them a reality yeah lovely Courtney it has been such an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and thank you so much for your time and your openness in, in sharing your story thank you oh thank you Anna I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the female career podcast thank you so much for listening For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.